reminding people that the joy matters and that this work is so fulfilling and it there's something inspiring about work that takes every single part of you. I mean, being a president, there was no part of me that was sort of sitting on a shelf. Every single talent I had, every single thing I knew, every single relationship I had the potential to build, everything about me was demanded by that work. It, and, and there's something very exciting and inspiring about the way you come to know yourself when you take work on that is that challenging, even on the hardest days. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this first episode of season three. I am very excited about the conversations we are hosting in this season of Ingenious You, and I could not be more pleased to welcome our inaugural guest for this season, Dr. Marjorie Haas. The breadth and depth of Marjorie's academic and administrative background in higher education is impressive, as is her commitment to mentoring the next generation of higher education leaders. She has a particular heart for women leaders and is the author of the just released book, A Leadership Guide for Women in Higher Ed, published by Johns Hopkins University Press this most recent August. We will include Marjorie's bio in the show notes, but for now, Marjorie, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much, uh, Melissa. I'm really excited to be here. I uh, admire so many of the guests you've had on in previous seasons, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be to be part of this. Well, we'd like to start out, as you may know, by finding out something about our guests. And in your case, you have such a rich academic background, your bachelor's, your master's, your doctoral degrees, all in philosophy. You're published widely on the philosophy of language, logic, and feminist philosophy, and you are an award-winning teacher. You served on the faculty, and then you became provost at Muhlenberg. Before assuming your first presidency, you have served two private colleges as president, and this summer made yet another pivot to assume the presidency of the Council of Independent Colleges. So as you think back across your professional journey, I would love to know how the dots connect and what influences have most shaped who you are today? Such a broad question. And I, I like the way that you ask it in terms of sort of a narrative review, because so often when we hear somebody's professional biography, it sounds as though each step was so carefully planned and thought through and we were you know, led one to another. Uh, and that's often how we tell it retrospectively, but of course, it never feels like that in the in the moment. Um, and and I'll say a few words about my path in a, in a few minutes. I think the other thing about our paths, particularly as women, is that our professional biographies often leave out the ways that we have navigated our lives more holistically. And so, so much of my career has been shaped not only by the choices I made as a, a scholar, as a professor, as a leader, but also by the choices uh, that I made or that were made for me or thrust upon me in terms of my family life and my responsibilities as a wife and a mother. I knew very early in my life that philosophy was a discipline that really had my attention. I discovered that almost immediately in college. I remember thumbing through the catalog and circling the courses I wanted to take my, my freshman year, looking at all the classes that were offered and calling my mother and saying, 
they're all in the philosophy department. <laughs> and my parents were great. They said, great, be a philosophy major. Now, it felt very supportive at the time. I think, again, in retrospect, it, they might have been supportive in that way because I'm not sure they thought it mattered that much what a, a, a woman did or a girl did, right? I was probably going to get married and have a husband to support me. So, But that liberation and that freedom to sort of follow where my intellect led me was something that my parents had inculcated from me, in, in me at a very early age. Um, so I, my, my goal was really to become a professor, which I did. And it was uh, really sort of a, a surprise to me that I found myself moving towards a leadership path. I think for a lot of leaders in higher education, that does come as a surprise. We're committed, first of all, to our discipline. And we began, begin to take on leadership roles as a faculty member uh, and, and as uh, from our roles as professors. And that then leads us into more administrative opportunities and we we come to discover new parts of ourselves there i had uh, my children very early in my life as well so uh, my husband and i got married as i was graduating from college which was almost unheard of among my generation even my parents were like don't you want to live together first what if you know he has a bad season we hadn't known each other very long and uh, but we were we were young and passionately in love, and uh, we so we married young and we had children very quickly as well. In some ways, that made those early years very very difficult, but in other ways, it made uh, some of my later choices possible. Once I got tenure and uh, was ready to sort of lean into some of these more advanced senior leadership positions, my children were already in school. So I think like for many women, there's that intertwining of the personal and the professional. In assuming the presidency of the CIC, your focus has obviously shifted from overseeing one institution being on one campus to overseeing and advocating for an association of, I think you now have 765 yes. uh, nonprofit independent colleges yes. and universities. And so I'm sure that our listeners would be curious to know why you wanted to make that kind of a shift, what you hope to accomplish. And I'm interested in knowing whether you're missing being on a college campus this fall. I don't see how I could help but miss being on a college campus. This is the first job I've had as a, in my adult life where I've not been working for mm -hmm. on a college campus. So in some ways, this is the most significant transition I've made in my career, more significant in some ways than even moving into senior administration after being a, a professor. It was something that I think I, I was prepared for in many ways, something I'm extremely excited about. I'm so committed to the work we're doing here at CIC, but there's uh, that, that knowledge that the exciting things are happening on campus and, and we're a little bit removed from it is uh it, it it always brings a little bit of of sadness but it also encourages me to just pick up the phone and talk to our members and hear what's happening happening there cic is a really interesting organization because it is the council of independent colleges in other words it is an organization that draws on the knowledge the wisdom the fellowship of our members in order to bring our sector into uh, alignment with our highest ideals. So mm -hmm. the mission is threefold. We focus on developing leaders and supporting leaders on our campuses. We focus on helping our institutions achieve excellence, which we understand 
as within the grasp of every one of our institutions, we understand excellence at CIC as living out your mission, taking that those beautiful words in your mission statement and making them real for every one of your students. So it, we help institutions do that. And the third thing we do is help shape public dialogue around independent higher education, help make sure that the contributions our institutions make to their communities, to our country, to the world is better understood than it, than it typically is. Every one of those pieces of the mission really speaks to me. And the work I had done working particularly with women, but not exclusively with women on leadership development, the fact that I had this book coming out, the fact that my perspective had become increasingly national in scope, I think is what led CIC to seek me out and what led so many of my presidential colleagues to encourage me to take this role. I'm really excited about the impact we can have. I, I think we're at an inflection point for independent higher education, perhaps for higher education in general in our country. And I just feel deeply called to do everything I can to, to help make sure that these missions are, are preserved for future generations and that our, our colleges flourish so that they can serve this many talented students for whom this kind of relationship-driven, student-centered education is what they need to, to find their best selves. Well, and of course, you are no stranger to the CIC. Um, you, the Muhlenberg, Austin, Rhodes are all CIC institutions. And so you, you clearly um, have a, a heart for uh, both the individual mission, uh, but also the collective mission that the CIC represents. Absolutely. And I had served on the CIC board and had volunteered for many of its programs and, and institutes. And CIC was really formative for me in my own leadership development. There, there's so much to be gained by talking openly and honestly with others who are doing the same very challenging, very difficult work. Starting when I was a provost and then, of course, continuing through my presidencies, the the friendship, the support, the honest love and feedback I got from my peers across the country really helped me. The, the best things I did, have done as a president were things that I, I learned in part from my CIC experience and the ways I coped with the hardest things uh, were ways that I, I learned there too. So. CIC is the kind of organization that is there for our colleges and particularly our present presidents and our provosts and and others and on the best days and the worst days and you need that as a leader. So speaking of leadership, your recent book, A Leadership Guide for Women in Higher Education has been so positively received by women across higher ed. And I was telling you before we started the recording that two of my students in the doctoral program at Baypath have read the book and were so excited about what uh, they found and the inspiration they found from uh, the story that you tell in the book about your experiences. Uh, can, you, can you share something about why you decided to write this book and why now? Sure, well, the book really came about in part because there were so many demands on my time. I was, I, I was finding myself unable to keep up with just the volume of wonderful women who were reaching out for advice and mentorship and support. When I first became a, a college president, 
I discovered that, you know, because there are, particularly even at that time, fewer women presidents, we were much in demand uh, to, to help guide the careers uh, and, and give advice to other women on leadership, for whom leadership was an aspiration. And I, I really wanted to do my part. I, I believe so strongly in diversifying the leadership pool. Our, our academic leaders have to reflect the diversity of our students if we're going to succeed. And so I, I sort of vowed that I would, I would do everything I could to support the next generation of leaders, men, women, et cetera. But I would have a special place in my heart for women leaders or for um, leaders of color, if I could be helpful to them or anyone who really was looking to, to join in the project of leading our institutions who, who maybe felt themselves a little bit of an outsider in, in that work. And very quickly, I found that sort of just women I knew were asking for advice. And once one summer early in my first presidency, I maybe got emails or notes or calls from about six or seven women, all of whom I loved and had knew and had respect for saying, I really need to take some of your time this summer to talk about these issues. And they kind of listed the issues they wanted to talk about. And I realized that I wasn't going to have time to talk with each of them individually. And so I got this brainstorm. I said, let's get together. We met in a very early and primitive version of what we now know as Zoom. And uh, uh, we, I, we set out kind of an eight-week list of topics based on the things that they wanted to talk about. And we did that, you know, we met for an hour a week for eight weeks, talked about these topics. I sort of thought that would be the end of it. But then I started hearing from their friends and colleagues saying, when are you going to offer another one? And so I began doing this and I would try to do this every semester, every semester where I could have a cohort. Um, and it, it just grew from there. The book was the realization I don't have time anymore to even run these cohorts. And so I thought I would put the best of what we had talked about in those sessions into the book. And I think you can see, I, I think it reads very conversationally because it really is the result mm -hmm. of hundreds of conversations I've had over the years with real individuals about the kinds of issues that seemed to be most deeply on women's minds. There are a lot of leader, great leadership and presidential perspiration courses and CIC runs some wonderful ones. Um, but women often have issues that they wanna talk about that, that really cross beyond just the professional into the personal that really are about what happens to you inside as a leader? What does it feel like to lead? What do you learn about yourself? How does it affect your relationships? And so many of the topics that we talk about in the, in the book grew out of those conversations in these, in these uh, conversations and seminars. Well, one of the things I really appreciate in the first section of the book, you talk about the fact that you have occupied many first roles. You've been the first woman, uh, the first Jewish person, uh, and that, uh, that this has shaped your, your identity to a certain extent in the roles that you have held. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how that, how that has actually played out? And also, how has your professional identity evolved over time? One evolution is that I've become much more comfortable with, with owning sort of visibly and as part of my leadership agenda, that role as a first. You know, earlier when I was, was younger, I think it made me a little bit nervous. I worried that every, if every time they talked about me, they introduced me as the first woman provost or the first Jewish, that people would somehow 
think that I didn't have other, you know, you know, you worry, right? They'll think I'm just here because they needed a woman, or you th mm. think that it distracts from talking about what you've accomplished uh, by focusing on your identity. But I very quickly realized that the those aspects of my identity were not accidental to my leadership. They weren't accidental to my accomplishments, and they weren't accidentally important to the people. I was around, you know, the, the ways that I could heard over and over again, how breaking those barriers inspired other people to believe not only that they could continue to walk through those, you know, that they too could achieve this, but that they could break down even further barriers. So I've always had a motto in my mind that every door I am the first to walk through, my job is to hold that door open wider behind me. So that not just white women not like me, not just Jewish women, but women and others from whole different backgrounds find it easier to walk through those doors in the in the future. And I've really made that part of my my life's work and my mission. And and the seminars and the book and talking with you about these things is is part of how I fulfill that. Well, one of the other things that you write about in the introduction is the fact that you were reluctant initially to consider presidencies. And as someone now looking at your career um, and seeing a remarkable track record, this seems surprising to me that you might have been reluctant. So where did, where did that sense of reluctance come from and how did you, how did you manage it? I think there were a number of factors and I, I hear this in various ways from many of the women I've worked with over, over the years. Some of that reluctance I think comes from just, it's, it's not something you've thought of before. It, you, 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 you train in your, I trained in a discipline as a philosopher. Um, I didn't quite know what exactly the presidency encompassed when it was first mentioned to me as something I should think about. I was reluctant even when I thought, well, that sounds exciting. I, I think I could do that. I was reluctant to tell people that I had that ambition. Uh, the notion that, you know, nice girls don't have ambitions. We wait for someone to ask us if we would like to do something. So owning and naming that ambition felt risky to me. I was aware that many of the relationships that were most important to me might be changed if I took on a presidency, certainly my professional relationships, uh, it's, you don't, you don't get to stay just one more member of the faculty. You don't get to be part of an academic department in the same way when you become a provost or a president, but also my family relationships. It would, it would uh, take me away from some of the very nice features that being a professor had made possible in my life with my family and my children and my, my husband. Um, I wondered what it would mean for my husband if I took on this kind of job. So all of those things were things I really had to think through before I could say to myself, yes, this is, this is something I want to try. I also had to face the risk that I might try and fail. Mm -hmm. You know, again, failure is something that women can find so potentially devastating that we don't take the risks we should take. So I had to learn to be a risk taker as well. 
Well, and and as you've you've described, you have been an advisor, a supporter to so many women over the years. You've spoken to many women during the writing of your book. Can you say a little bit more about what you have learned and what you heard from women about the barriers that they have faced as they navigate, as they've navigated their professional journeys? And, and then in terms of your own experience, what, what kinds of barriers have you faced in the different roles that you've occupied? The barriers are very real and they really, come in a multiplicity of types, I would say. There are fewer formal barriers than there were for my mother's generation, right? Um, you know, very few uh, institutions would say, we're only looking at male candidates or we're not gonna hire a woman. Uh, there are institutions though that are very clear that they don't wanna hire somebody who's Jewish. That's something I certainly face. And um, there are many institutions that even when they don't say we're only going to hire a man, their image in their minds of what leadership looks like is, is male leadership, uh, is a, you know, a man in a suit. And it's hard for them and, and often a white man in a suit. And it's very hard for them to get their minds wrapped around what leadership could look like if it doesn't come in that package. So the overt barriers are still there, but they're 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 a little more subtle, but there are so many implicit barriers beyond that, not just the having to sometimes imagine what a leader like you looks like and does and dresses and thinks and talks about. There's issues, uh, and this is true, certainly, you know, again, as a white woman, I'm very fortunate and very privileged in many ways that, you know, my many of the aspects of my own history count for me in these uh, things. I'm a straight woman. I have this beautiful husband and lovely children. So I fit into, in many ways, the categories that, uh, you know, that, that easily into certain leadership categories. But uh, for me, and then for a whole host of other people where there are aspects of yourself that don't fit into those categories, having to sort of make it up as you go and be your own role model sometimes and imagine what it could look like when you are there and how you're going to hold all the pieces of yourself together. That takes a lot of energy. And uh, many women face that. I, I have faced, you know, some overt sexism, overt anti-Semitism. One would expect that. Sometimes, you know, I, I write in the book about different ways to navigate that. Some of it depends on my mood for the day, really. <laughs> and some of it uh, ideally, you know, depends on sort of what strategic goals I'm pursuing at a given moment. But the barriers are very, very real. And uh, one of them that I, again, I navigated relatively smoothly because of my children, I had my children early in my life. It made that early part of my life very difficult, but I was able to um, navigate and balance mothering and the presidency because my children were a little bit older. One of the biggest barriers I faced early in my career is that when my children arrived, both of them, I was in different stages of life in different places, but in neither case did I have any access to paid maternity leave. So mm -hmm. I, I was, I didn't have time off to be with my children. That was very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And something I've tried to rectify in my positions. One of the fun things about being the president is you can create the policies. So um, <laughs> things I have tried to rectify as I've moved forward in my career. These are difficult days for higher education, 
Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, you will learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. Marjorie, I'd like to go back to our discussion about barriers. One of the most valuable aspects of your book, I think, is the fact that you validate what so many women have experienced by calling it out. By this, I mean that in writing about and speaking about these barriers and microaggressions that so many of us have experienced, but perhaps wondered whether they were real or just for imagination, you provide such a helpful sense of encouragement and also a way of making sense of these experiences. Absolutely. You know, I, I talk in the book about some of the ways that you experience that dichotomy between how people think about leaders and how people think about women that still exists. And, uh, you know, it, it's often very subtle. Sometimes you find yourself so enraged because you know you've been insulted but when you look at the comment it seems like well but it was kind of a nice thing to say and you have to realize no no that was a very underhanded way of complimenting me or it's a it diminished me even as it you know said something supposedly nice and you know those sorts of microaggressions again obviously women of color experience those in many ways that are many more much more complicated than than i perhaps have so i've learned a lot from my colleagues and listening to their voices and the generosity which was they shared their experiences with me. Now I have to ask you about chapter three, which I I love the fact that you have included a chapter on how to expand your capacity to experience work as a source of deep pleasure and joy. I was a bit surprised when I started reading the book and I thought, now this is interesting. I wonder why there's a chapter why? Well, on, on I mean this. So, I think this is one of the biggest challenges our sector faces oh. is who is going to want to do the work of presidential leadership in particular. The work is so difficult. There are so many challenges. There are so much opportunity to be criticized and to be brought down. And the problems you're often trying to address are so intractable and endemic. There's almost no problems you can solve by just applying money to it, right? You have to use creativity for everything. Um, we are in a very, you know, contentious political climate where everything you do will be evaluated through political lenses. So 
I worry about the burnout. I worry about the wearing down. And I worry about the notion that some of our best potential leaders will just say, it's just not for me. It, it, it demands too much. So reminding people that the joy matters and that this work is so fulfilling and it, there's something inspiring about work that takes every single part of you. I mean, being a president, there was no part of me that was sort of sitting on a shelf. Every single talent I had, every single thing I knew, every single relationship I had the potential to build, everything about me was demanded by that work. It, and, and there's something very exciting and inspiring about the way you come to know yourself when you take work on that is that challenging, even on the hardest days. So reminding people to really take that seriously and to amplify and emphasize the parts of the work that give you deep pleasure. And they'll be different for everybody. You know, no, we aren't all going to find the same pieces, but in the book, I try to help women and readers work through an, an exercise to help identify those pieces that are most likely to feed you and to uh, diminish the negative pull, to name it and diminish it, and then to amplify the positive pieces. And, and are there, is there one or two things that you can share that you have personally found helpful in that regard? Yes. Again, it, a lot of it is about, is about knowing, you know, yourself well. And I learned pretty early on that um, there are times of day I'm at my best. There are times of day I'm at my worst. There is a limit to how long I can sit still in a meeting without just wanting to climb the walls, no matter how fascinating or important the meeting is. So I learned very early on to try to control my calendar so that I was very aware of interspersing the things that drained my energy with the things that enhanced my energy. And that was very helpful. And again, what drains and what enhances differs from person to person, but that was really helpful. I also learned and continue to learn how important it is to pay attention to my own emotional reaction to things in real time and to name those feelings. Uh, we often use the phrase stress to cover up feelings we don't want to name. And for women in particular, being able to find name and appropriately express your anger and it is super important and that was very freeing again not learning how to shout and have a tantrum but learning how to say oh the reason i'm feeling under so much stress is i was really angry about something that happened in that meeting three hours ago and i need to process that and i need to accept and understand why it made me angry that was very, very helpful. When I uh, get to the part in the seminars where we would talk about, I'd say, all right, today we're going to talk about hard feelings. We're going to talk about anger and we're going to talk about crying at work. And everybody would laugh. And then those would be the liveliest sessions we ever had because every woman has stories to tell and to talk about. Many men, I'm sure, do as well. Yeah. Oh, those are those are really helpful, helpful strategies and important things to, to keep in mind. Now, you have been described by others as somebody who is really good at crafting a vision. And mm -hmm. in chapter five, you describe this skill as one of the most important but least understood leadership skills. What, uh, from your perspective, what is visioning and how might somebody hone that skill? This is so important because 
it, particularly if you aspire to sort of the CEO position, you know, the presidency or, or something equivalent, you will be immediately asked, what's your vision? Sometimes you're asked that during the interview. You haven't even been on the campus. You've met three people associated with it. You want to know what your vision is. It's a very mistaken view, I think, of how visions get, how the best visions get crafted. We also often mistake a vision for a specific goal. And I think of the visioning process as, as being deeper than that. It, it certainly requires some deep grounding in the institution and its talents and its um, aspirations and its possibilities. And then it requires a really creative kind of sense where you come, it, it, you know, I define it as a, a, in my book as a, a set of stories and symbols and images that give people a sense of the organization's future in a way that feels both familiar and strange. It has to feel familiar enough that people can see themselves in it. You have to be talking about this future you are going to build together in a way that helps people find themselves in it and feel that they would be appreciated and flourish in that space. But it has to be just different enough and uncanny enough that it feels aspirational. And there are many ways that the visioning process goes wrong. Sometimes presidents pick something or, or, or name a vision that feels so foreign and far away that people think, well, I won't have a place in that, right? If the vision is we're going to automate my job, well, why would I get behind that? How would that be exciting for me? Or they pick a vision that feels like it's just one step away. We're going to, you know, be two degrees better than we are now. That's not very aspirational. There's not a sense of hope there. So that's one, one danger. The other danger is that you, instead of a vision, you start talking about very specific goals. You know, we're going to move our ranking this way, or we're going to raise this many dollars, or we're going to move um, student retention to this number. Those are important pieces that fall out of a vision, but the vision has to engage people on a gut emotional level. So it has to be not just a set of stated goals, but a picture or an image you can paint for people or a set of stories and anecdotes. All of those things have to move forward together. And it takes a lot of creativity to, to find that vision. Mm. Well, and then in chapter six, you go on um, to highlight some of the other really practical aspects of career development for women. So um, visioning is, is as a skill, very, very important, but yes. then you talk about other things. And so from your experience, what do you think are the most essential advanced skills that uh, women really need to be working on if they envision themselves becoming senior leaders? Um, maybe even presidents. Some of the experiences you need, you know, a lot of times women contact me and they say, I, you know, I'm just an associate professor. Or I'm just a, you know, assistant student affairs dean or what have you, but I, I have aspirations. How do, what do I need to do? Sometimes you just have to have certain experiences. You know, you need to have the, the personnel experiences, the budget experiences. And I talk in the book about ways you can get those things, no matter your job title. But once you're really ready to move on, the, the biggest pieces that I think you need, you need that creative 
visioning ability. You need the ability to kind of understand yourself and how you will carry on on good days and bad. You need the ability to attract and retain a top level team. The, the presidency is not a solo sport. That was part of what excited me about administrative work. It was the first time I ever got to be on a team. And that notion that we are a team, that you bring skills that I don't have, that I bring skills, that we, we work together to do what we do best, that my job is to coach you and support you, but not to do your work. I have to be doing my work. That's so important. And so really finding opportunities to, to work as a team, to build the confidence to hire people that are smarter than you and better at their job than you would be doing their job so that you additively can bring the very best to the institution. That's very, very important. The communication skills are also extremely important. So much of certainly the presidency, the college presidency in these days is won or lost by your effectiveness at communicating across multiple media and with multiple audiences. So those are two that I think are extremely important for the sort of the advanced kinds of jobs. So one of the other really helpful things that you address, and this is in chapter seven, and the title, which, which I really like, called Winning the Job. Um, and, and you address here how, how you know it's time to start looking for that next job. And then how can you go about getting that next yes. job while still working in your current job? Again, I don't think women, generally speaking, think this way. And so uh, why, why did you think it was important to include this uh, in, in the book? This is one of the most common questions that I hear from women and men, right, is what is the, like, how do you get one of these jobs? And I really try to demystify it. I feel as though I'm kind of pulling the curtain back and showing you what happens behind the scenes from the perspective of the, the hiring group, whether that's, you know, a dean, a president, a vice president, or whether it is a board of trustees if they're hiring a, a president. And I try to show what it looks like from their perspective. And then I try to talk about the steps that these searches typically undertake you know, the biggest difference when you start looking at very senior administrative positions is that there's often a search firm in the midst of that. And so learning how to work with those firms, how to uh, both um, effectively communicate your skills with them, but also how you can use them to help build your skills. These are you know, the search firm, they're experts. They know what these jobs require. They know how um, and what colleges need in them. And they can be very useful in helping you think about how to build out your portfolio. If they see promise in you, they will work with you over time and they will help you find the right match. So building those relationships really matters. Um, and I also try to talk about for you might not be aiming high enough. You might not be taking enough risks. And so how do you preserve your dignity and your integrity and your energy to get into what is usually a very competitive search process. You describe leadership as a personal and a spiritual journey. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think I mean a little bit of what I was talking about before, that this work takes every party. Leading, leading is one of the most humbling things you can do. When you're leading well, 
you see every one of your flaws reflected back at you. You see every one of your strengths reflected back at you. You, you won't have a talent or a strength that, you know, if you know how to knit, there will be a day when what's called on is for you to, you know, pull out your knitting needles and knit in this job. So whatever your skills and talents are, there's nothing that will be hidden, but your flaws as well. You see so clearly the places where you could have done better, the places where you um, have let someone or something down. And so it, it really is an encounter with your soul. I, I'm Jewish and my, my religious traditions have really buoyed me and supported me in, in my work. They've, they've given me language to think aspirationally and hopefully. They've given me a framework to um, make myself better and to, to continually work on helping myself grow emotionally and psychologically and in terms of actual skills. They've given me a way to navigate very hard times as a leader. You know, when you're in charge, there is nothing that does not fall on your door. And you stand in these jobs and you have to be ready on any given day to talk to a newly grieving parent or to um, sit with somebody who has just learned they are not getting tenure or whose career is ending or whose career is just beginning. At the same time, you have to bring the full measure of joy to the and, and excitement to institutional celebrations. So there's no, you, you, you have to rely, I think, on something bigger and more than yourself, however you conceive of that in order to do this work. And there are days when you really do feel like God just worked through me. I don't know how we came out of this crisis. I don't know how we made that good decision. I don't know how we'll cope with this tragedy. And you feel yourself a channel uh, for something that's bigger than you. We've come to the end of our time. And uh, I have so, so enjoyed this conversation and, and been inspired by your, by your comments. So your I questions can't... were wonderful ones. They were very thought provoking. And I really appreciated your taking me back to the book. You know, uh, the, I finished writing the book a year and a half, you know, it just takes a long time between the time you finish it and it comes out. So it was exciting to be reminded of it and to hear the kinds of things that leap out at a reader. So thank you yeah. very much. Oh, well, you're welcome, but I, I can't let this end without asking you our signature question. So we have a question we ask at the end of every, uh, at the end of, of every episode, we call it our signature question. And it is this, and I know you will have a good perspective on this, given your, your experience. So how are you thinking about the future of higher education right now? And what do you believe should be on the radar of every college and university leader? I am thinking that we are at a real crucible moment and we will either rise to this occasion and the promise of higher education in this country will flourish for future generations of students or we will fail to rise for it and there will be no turning back and no way of recuperating what we've lost. And I firmly believe that leadership is what will make the difference at this moment. So again, helping to prepare and support leaders. I, I don't think there's anything that would feel more personally fulfilling to me now. What should be on our minds? Only the most core and fundamental things, right? The, the core questions about how democratic citizens are formed and what kind of education do we need to prepare a next generation of students who will be prepared 
to function in a diverse, not just function, but to lead and support and value the diversity and breadth of our democratic society? How do we make that promise available? Um, and and how, do we, um, how do we recognize that the things that we have said to our children, that we care about fairness and we care about equality and we care about, um, uh, about a, a system that allows for the American dream or some version of it to be reached by everyone. How do we now make that a reality? We know it has not been a reality. We've used those words, we've expanded who gets an opportunity in higher education and fits and starts. Most of our opportunity, uh, you know, many of our institutions in CIC began as institutions that only serve men or only serve white people or only serve Christian people. And they have in fits and starts broadened that mission so that they see themselves as having a stake in a wider group of potential students and citizens. How do we continue that path against what we know is a lot of backlash against it and a lot of reasons to give up on that and a lot of humility we have to have about our own failures to live up to what we had hoped. How do we continue to do that? So the future of democracy, the future of work, what is going to be meaningful work in the future? How will families be arranged so that it supports meaningful work? Those are the things that have to be on our leaders' minds every single day. They're big, big issues. The future of the planet is probably another one. How do we ensure that there will be a healthy planet for our children and our children's children? So leading it, this moment is not for the faint of heart. You have to be looking at those big pictures and thinking about them and holding yourselves and your institutions to really, really high standards. I'm Melissa Morris Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CELIP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly leading edge thinking in higher ed webinar series. In next week's episode, I speak with one of higher ed's most foremost experts on transformational change leadership. Dr. Wallace Pond has been in the trenches leading transformational change for decades, serving in multiple CEO, executive, and partnership roles. During our conversation, we discuss the need to redefine leadership with self-knowledge and compassion at the center, and Wallace shares insights about what it really takes to pull off transformational change on a college or university campus. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious Hue wherever you get your podcasts, and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious community. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well. Mm -hmm.